It's time for the Tom Sumner Program. The Tom Sumner Program is a live variety show with music, comedy and special guest interviews every Monday through Friday. The Tom Sumner Program. Old-fashioned radio for a new generation. Theme music is Fruit of the Louvre, provided by Flint composer-producer Howard Eddy. Stay tuned, because it's on now. Old-fashioned radio for a new generation. The Tom Sumner Program. Here's your host. Have you lost your job and your health care coverage due to COVID-19? You're not alone, and Genesee Health Plan can help. I called, and they provided health care enrollment over the phone with Medicaid, HealthCare.gov, and Genesee Health Plan. They made sure I had access to doctor visits, my prescriptions, and more. Getting health care coverage can be confusing. You don't have to do it alone. Get help with GHP. Call 844-232-7740 or go to GeneseeHealthPlan.org. We're in this together, and together we'll get through it. Hi, I'm U.S. Senator Debbie Stabenow, and I'm listening to the Tom Sumner Show. Hello, darling. This is Elvira, Mistress of the Dark, and you're celebrating Schlocktober with Tom Sumner. In the hustle of today, we're all inclined to miss little things that mean so much. A word, a smile, a kiss. When a woman loves a man, he's a hero in her eyes. And a hero he can always be, if you'll just realize. She may be weary. Women do get weary. Wearing the same shabby dress. And when she's weary, try a little tenderness. You know she's waiting. Just anticipating things she may never possess. While she's without them, try a little tenderness. It's not just sentimental. She has her grief and care. And a word that's soft and gentle makes it easier to bear. 
You won't regret it. Women don't forget it. Love is their whole happiness. It's all so easy. Try a little tenderness. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to the show. That was... <coughs> Excuse me. I think I'm coming down with a bit of a cold. That was uh, our Schlocktober pick of the day, an old favorite from Jack Webb doing Try a Little Tenderness. For those of you who don't know, Schlocktober, of course, is uh, where each day we start and end the show with a uh, different odd or horrible recording while everyone else celebrates Shocktober or Rocktober, we celebrate Schlocktober here on the Tom Sumner program. And uh, today's Wednesday, which means Armchair Politics is coming up next hour, two hours of uh, commentary and analysis about local, state, and national headlines and uh, current events with uh, our roundtable regulars, Paul Rosicki and Henry Hatter, joined by political or Politico Emeritus, I call him Woodrow Stanley. But uh, first, we're going to talk with um, Professor of Political Science and Director of the Center on American Politics at the University of Denver, who has a book that just came out last month called Learning from Loss, the Democrats 2016 to 2020, and what an appropriate time to be talking with Seth Maskett, who joins me by phone. Seth, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, and thank you for playing that Jack Webb recording. I'd never heard that before. It was amazing. <laughs> you know, there are songs that just make you go, hmm. Um, <laughs> actually have have one that's new this year, uh, Granny Clampett singing the blues. <laughs> anyway, sorry to put you through that, Seth, but, uh, <laughs> but let's talk about uh, learning from loss. Um, how am... Uh, what is it that we that we learned in 2016 or that Democrats learned in 2016 that they should be playing co- uh, close attention to during this election cycle, which is drawing to a close very soon? Yeah, I mean, that was really what my book was all about. I was trying to figure out the lessons that Democratic activists and you know, people within the party um, what they felt that they learned from Hillary Clinton's loss in 2016. Um, and I, to be honest, I, when I was talking with people about this, I spent a lot of time talking with activists in the early contest states in, in New Hampshire and Iowa and South Carolina and Nevada. Um, and I wasn't so much interested in, you know, the lessons that they learned in, in, in deciding what were correct. Um, I really just wanted to know what people believed were the reasons and, and what those beliefs led them to do and, and who it uh, led them to nominate. I mean, you know, one of the one of the things Democrats came out of that election with was the idea that, you know, the party was, they, they thought they lost because they were divided. And they've been really eager to 
uh, you know, not reveal a lot of divisions within the party this year and to, you know, show themselves as presenting a united front behind Joe Biden. And I think they've done that pretty effectively. Um, but they also, um, you know, they learned, they, you know, they, they took a couple of lessons and they were still very divided about it. Some were convinced that they lost because um, the campaign was flawed or they used bad advertising or they campaigned in the wrong places or Hillary Clinton was just a poor candidate or there was Russian interference. But um, there was this one lesson. Um, some people took from it this, this sort of identity politics argument that Hillary Clinton had spent too much time advocating for, for underrepresented groups, for um, people of color, for women, um, and that that had somehow alienated working class whites. And again, I, you know, there's not a lot of direct proof for this, but a lot of people believe this. And that what they needed to do to solve that problem was nominate, you know, someone, um, you know, some, uh, basically a, a, you know, a moderate white guy. Um, and, you know, Joe Biden became sort of a logical choice for a party that had that opinion. And so they just, uh, they were willing to, you know, pay a price. They were willing to, you know, eat a lot of, uh, a lot of their own, um, uh, first preferences to, in order to get a win against Donald Trump. And, and that's, seems to be what they came up with this year. When you talk about identity politics, what about personality politics? There were a lot of people who just didn't like Hillary. Yeah, I, I think that's right. And I think um, people who um, focused on that, a lot of them felt that people did like Biden or that they at least found him inoffensive. Um, that is, they, you know, a lot of people, when I was asking early on, you know, what, you know, what is it that um, uh, when they were talking about Joe Biden as a possible nominee, um, a lot of people described him as safe. They used that word that, um, you know, he may have not uh, represented everything that they wanted in a nominee or everything that they wanted their party to do, but that he wouldn't alienate anyone due to, you know, due to his personality or anything else. And, you know, sometimes that when they say Hillary Clinton was unlikable or something like that, there, there's a lot of things built into that. There's a lot of, like, I think uh, it, it's in some ways kind of a coded way of talking about gender um, or other things, but uh, it was something that people took out of 2016, right or wrong. Um, there was a lot of excitement around the um, Barack Obama candidacy, and and I'm thinking back to, of course, the uh, uh, time of JFK. There was a lot of excitement around JFK, although that election was very, very close. Um, mm -hmm. The people that support Donald Trump seem to be very energized and although a lot of polling favors joe biden um I, I don't feel the same energy around joe biden's candidacy that people have around donald trump how much does that influence what ends up happening november 3rd so it is it's somewhat important enthusiasm matters um, in a race. And uh, I think you're, you're right. Trump definitely, I, I don't think he has, um, you know, majority support, but those who do support him support him very enthusiastically. I think on the Democratic side, you saw that behind a candidate like Bernie Sanders, 
um, who, you know, didn't have an enormous following within the party, but those who liked him really liked him a lot. I found that among the, um, you know, some of the, the Sanders volunteers and activists I, I spoke with over the last few years, like, they were with him for 2020 as strongly as they'd been with him for 2016. Um, and I agree with you that um, it, you didn't necessarily see that as much for Biden. Um, not completely. There were, um, you know, there were certainly a lot of, uh, you know, particularly black Democrats in South Carolina who were very strongly supportive of him. Um, but for the most part, I think, you know, people said Biden was good enough. That was that was enough for them, and they are honestly very motivated to vote against Donald Trump. Which you know, in terms of a vote, it looks the same. Um, so there's, and you see this in the voting turnout right now that there's huge enthusiasm for um, for Democrats to turn out early and make sure that um, that their vote is counted. But I think you're right; it doesn't. It's not exactly the same level of of specific candidate enthusiasm. Well, I, I wonder how much that enthusiasm. Um, influences undecideds, and 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 also in what you just said, Seth, I I, I can't help asking: Is good enough? Good enough? <laughs> <laughs> well, we'll know in a couple of weeks. Um, but uh, it's, one can it's hope. One, one can yeah. <laughs> hope we'll know in a couple of weeks. But a lot of, one of the things that, um, you know, political science will tell us is that, you know, when a, when a president is running for re-election, the main thing voters are voting on is whether they like or dislike the incumbent. Um, it, you know, everything is really turning on people's feelings about Donald Trump right now. And I think Biden has campaigned pretty competently. I mean, he's, he's, he's done well at this, but mostly by keeping people focused on the Trump presidency. And, uh, you know, the things that, uh, that people have disliked about that presidency. So, um, you know, that's, that's going to drive a lot of this right now. And, uh, that's, I think that's enough. I think that's enough. Um, but you're right. There's, um, I think Republicans in 2012 were feeling like they really wanted to beat Obama and not a lot of them were hugely enthusiastic about Mitt Romney, but felt like he was enough that, you know, they could agree on him, and that was okay. Um, and it almost got them a win, but not quite. Um, and sometimes parties do that. They, um, you know, they, they come up with someone that they can roughly agree on and assume that will be enough. But I don't know that that's, um, you know, if you go with someone who is, people have a lot of enthusiasm about, oftentimes there's a lot of enthusiasm against that person, too. Um, that, you know, really, enthusiasm candidates can be very polarizing figures, and that can sometimes scare some centrist voters off. I, I, I want to dig down some more on this, Seth, but I have to go to break. Can you stick around for about four minutes, and, uh, yeah, and, and we can dig down on this some more? My guest is uh, Seth Maskett. He is uh, professor of political science and director of the Center on American Politics at the University of Denver and author of a book that came out last month, Learning from Loss, The Democrats, 2016 to 2020. We'll be right back. Hello out there, everybody. It's me, Tigger. T-I-Double-G-R. That spells Tigger. And don't forget to remember to listen to Tom Sumner program on account of because he's so bouncy. <laughs> 
I'm Julie Lopez with Crime Stoppers. Have you ever wondered what to do if you have information about a crime or the whereabouts of a felony fugitive and you want the police to know but you need to remain anonymous? Well, here's what you can do. You can go to p3tips.com or download the mobile app. You can go to Crime Stoppers of Flint and Genesee County's Facebook page and click on the Leave an Anonymous Tip tab, or you can call 1-800-422-JAIL. All methods are anonymous, and if your help leads to a felony arrest, you may be eligible for a cash reward. Remember, your voice matters. A social distancing tip. Putting distance between yourself and others is critical to slowing the spread of coronavirus. So here are ways to stay in contact without the physical contact part. Call, send a text, set up a video conference, post on social media, dedicate a song on the radio. If you have symptoms of fever, dry cough, and shortness of breath, call your health care provider before going to their office. For more info, visit coronavirus.gov. Let's all do our part, because we're all hashtag alone together. Brought to you by America, your children have an amazing superpower. They can help save lives by not having playdates. That's right. By replacing get-togethers with virtual playdates and video chats, they can help slow the evil spread of germs. And if your superheroes do go outside, make sure they continue their superhero wing by staying six feet away from others to protect everyone in America land. Find out more at coronavirus.gov. A message from the CDC and the Ad Council. East Village Magazine is the monthly neighborhood magazine read all over Flint. With support from grants, donations, and advertisers, East Village Magazine's talented local writers give you an in-depth look at local news, issues, and people that make Flint, Flint. Copies of East Village Magazine are available at many of your favorite shops and restaurants around Flint or online at eastvillagemagazine.org. East Village Magazine, community-focused and community-supported. Your calls matter. Join me and Andrea weekdays from 9 to 10 a.m. Eastern to talk about whatever you want to talk about. The Tom Sumner Program has open phone lines Monday through Friday to hear from you. How's 2020 working out for you so far? How about those damn roads? Call in live at 810-339-8255. It's all about you. We'll be streaming live at TomSumnerProgram.com and simulcast on WFOV 92.1 FM in Flint. Foil hats are optional. You thought you had every Elvis record made, but wait, Elvis sings again, this time from heaven. That's right, Elvis from heaven. Yes, hear Elvis from Graceland in the Sky, soul-stirring versions of epic proportions. You'll hear Elvis crooning, Pearly Gate Rock, all dug up, lying in the chapel, and 11 others. This record also includes a special Elvis message. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. I'm Elvis Presley. Order before midnight tonight and receive this Elvis Presley commemorative casket keychain. Open it up. Yes, the king inside. A must for any Elvis fan. Order yours today. To order your Elvis from Heaven, send $9.95 in check or money order to Elvis from Heaven, P.O. Box 714, Cleo, Michigan, 44487. Or save COD charges and phone 555-5554. Use Master Charge or Visa, Canadian residence, add $3. Technical assistance for the Tom Sumner Program is provided by Swiftlet Technology. Engineering and IT services at swiftlet.technology. Tom Sumner Program.com The Tom Sumner Program.com
This is Congressman Dan Kildee, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. And welcome back, everybody. We continue my conversation with uh, political science professor and author Seth Maskett. His uh, new book, uh, which came out last month, is Learning from Loss, the Democrats, 2016 to 2020. Seth, welcome back. Thanks for sticking around. Sure. Um, Seth, what uh, what was it exactly that, that made you decide to write this book? Well, um, a lot of the research I've done is on political parties. I, I usually focus on them more on the state level. Um, you know, I look at party reform movements and things like that. But what I really wanted to capture for this project was a political party in the act of making a decision. Um, that is, you know, there's there's honestly a lot of good work out there about the decisions that parties make, like like what stances to take and who to nominate or, or how they nominate them and things like that. Um, but everything sort of assumes that there's some kind of a conversation that takes place where um, they lose an election, people talk among, you know, activists and party leaders and others just talk among each other about why they think they lost and um, what they need to do for the next election and then examine different candidates and decide who they like and don't like. And I really wanted to capture that taking place. I mean, the funny thing was I, I you know, had this, I, the idea for this book back in 2016. And at the time, I was assuming it was going to be about the Republicans. Um, that is, they had had a, a really unusual nomination process. You know, the, the primaries were so strange that year that they came up with Trump as the nominee. And it looked like they were heading for a loss. And, you know, if you were following the polls in 2016, that's what it at least looked like at the time. And I figured, well, they're, you know, they're going to have to have a very serious conversation among themselves after this is all over about how they ended up in the situation, how they lost an election they didn't need to lose. Um, and, of course, it ended up being the Democrats that, are, that had that conversation. And so I decided to, you know, follow them um, and get a sense of how they were interpreting what happened. And I just, you know started interviewing these these activists in 2017 and and just kept following up with them up until early 2020 and just followed their thought processes and and in many ways like the the emotional processes they were going through as well just to see what was going on what is the uh, impact uh, of well let's see I'm not I'm not even sure how to exactly set this up but I guess what I want to get at Seth is um, you know, okay, they've done their post-mortem on 2016 and mm-hmm. decided they're going to do it different this time around, and then along comes COVID-19. Um, how is the, the benefit from um, the lessons learned of 2016 overshadowed by the pandemic? What would they be doing differently, or how would they be playing differently had it not been for this pandemic? The pandemic is, is really interesting. And I only I mentioned it just a bit in the book because basically I was focusing on the process that occurred from November 2016 right up until, you know, roughly the Iowa caucuses, um, just to the early contests in, in February, which was basically before um, the, the pandemic became widespread in the United States. And, you know, I, I, I talk about it a little bit in the book that um, it's not clear what sort of effect 
the virus had on the uh, on on the Democratic nomination process. I have my suspicion is that in some ways it, it cut the contest short. Like it's possible that you know had there been no virus, you might have seen. Uh, you know, I, I think you would have seen the party rallying behind uh, Biden as, as they did in the end of February. Um, but you might have seen Bernie Sanders uh, mounting a, you know, a, a much longer uh, resistance campaign against Biden's nomination, as much as he did in 2016. And you might have seen the party look a, a bit more divided well into the spring. Um, but I think at, at that point, you know, by March, once people realized the virus was becoming a, a serious threat, at that point, no one really knew what campaigning was going to look like. Um, all of a sudden, you know, the conventions were thrown into doubt. Uh, you couldn't really have rallies anymore, which are obviously very important to the Sanders campaign. Um, and, you know, there were risks to the candidates' own health and the health of their families and the health of their supporters. So at that point, I think, um, you know, a lot of the enthusiasm for, you know, continuing this, this you know, some very vibrant campaigning, I, I think, was um, was really quashed. And it just cut a lot of things short. So the timing, I don't think it ended up affecting who actually won the nomination. I think that was going Biden's way regardless of of the pandemic. But I think it may have helped shut down that contest a little earlier than it might have otherwise. And um, and I think her, maybe well, yeah. and, and maybe uh, um, tamped down some of the enthusiasm and and momentum that comes out of conventions. Um, possibly, yeah. Because I the mean, convention, the, the 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 conventions, those those sort of Zoom meeting versions of uh, conventions that we saw. Um, really didn't have the same celebratory nature that we've seen in the past to to really launch a campaign. Those conventions were fascinating to watch. I mean, (laughs) they did a lot of the things that parties try to do. You know, they showed a nomination happening and they brought, you know, a range of speakers on and things like that. But it's just, it's hard to convey the enthusiasm that the usual conventions are designed to do, just showing the, you know, adoring crowds, which people just couldn't do in this situation. And, yeah, the audience, audience viewership was down. And, um, you know, and as a result, you know, what we saw in the, the polling around the, uh, the conventions is they basically had no effect on, on people's voting behavior. Um, there, there was just re- no real convention bounce one way or the other. Because um, you know, basically, it was it was the hardcore Democrats and the hardcore Republicans watching, and they didn't really change anyone's minds. And in your in your conversations with people, um, what what do they think about Biden? Um, and and what are your thoughts about Biden's campaign being sort of low key and a lot of a lot of video stuff trump says he's you know staying in the basement and trump's out doing rallies but um joe biden is known for um getting himself into trouble by making gaffes and stuff and i i wonder if if these two very different kinds of campaigns if it isn't sort of working to biden's advantage he's 
he's not out there doing those those big uh, uh, rally speeches where he tends to to get flustered and make gaffes and um and i wonder if that isn't maybe playing in his favor a little bit it's interesting to think about biden's strengths and weaknesses in in this year like um people often think about you know a, a party nomination uh process as some sort of a contest where you have all the candidates are trying to do a certain set of things they're like you know, flipping pancakes in New Hampshire and, and serving steak or pork in, in Iowa. And, and uh, they do speeches and rallies and debates. And whoever does all these things the best gets the nomination. And I, I, I you know, tend to think that it doesn't really work that way. I, there, I, I can't think of any particular campaign events across 2019 and early 2020 where Biden was the best among the Democratic candidates at them. Um, he was, you know, he was fine in most of them, but, you know, you could, you could certainly find places where, you know, like Sanders had, you know, more adoring crowds, uh, you know, Warren had a better mastery of policy. I mean, you, you could find, there was always a candidate who was better in many ways. They were searching for, um, a candidate like Biden simply because they had this belief that he could win. They had this belief, not based on a whole lot, but a belief that he was the most electable. And it's interesting to see how, you know, once we entered this pandemic environment in March, um, he has shown, I think, some real strengths there. Um, one of the skills he does have as a candidate is he's great at portraying empathy. Um, he's great at, you know, talking about grief in his own life and translating that into, you know, dealing, you know, addressing grief that other people have been experiencing. That turned out to be a very important skill for this year. Um, and, uh, and I, I think you're right that because he has, you know, not had as visible a campaign as he might have, you know, absent the virus, um, that has taken some of the heat off some of his gaffes that he would have otherwise made. <laughs> um, and of course, you know, if you're running against Donald Trump, uh, you know, that, that can also help. Um, it's, it's, you know, if you, if you're looking for a candidate who's going to uh, say some things that were off script, um, that's a good candidate to be running against. Um, so that, that probably helped him a bit. Um, but yeah, he's, uh, you know, in, in many ways, this has been like, a, you know, a, a very good environment for him to be running a relatively low key campaign. In. It's worked rather well for him. You mentioned something in the last segment, Seth, that I wanted to go uh, back to and pick up on about, uh, incumbency. And, um, in 2016, there was no incumbent. It was basically an open seat, whereas this year, uh, President Trump is running for re-election. In a case where you have a, a, an incumbent candidate, um, is it always the incumbents to lose? Um, yes and no. There's, uh, it's basically, you know, the, the usual pattern we see is that when there's an incumbent running, um, voters are going to blame the incumbent for things that are going wrong in the country, but they'll also give the incumbent credit for things that are going right. So, uh, you know, the, the fact that, uh, that we're, you know, in the sudden pandemic and it's, it's taken a real toll on the economy, you know, whether people blame Trump 
specifically for causing that, um, they're more or less voting on that. They're holding him accountable in some ways for, uh, for problems that they see in the country. And that's, uh, you know, that's very typical um, in elections. You know, I, you know, in 1984, when Ronald Reagan was running for re-election, you know, he wins this huge landslide in large part because the economy was doing really well. It was, it was growing at like 7% growth that year. And they, you know, regardless of anything Walter Mondale said or did, they were rewarding Reagan for, um, for, for the country doing better. Um, and similarly, when George H.W. Bush lost a few years later in 92, you know, Bill Clinton was a very strong challenger. But in large part, it was turning on the fact that the economy was not doing well and people were taking it out on, on Bush. And uh, that just put him in a very tough position. So, you know, this is, you know, regardless of Trump's own campaigning style and his own comments, this, this would be a very tough year for any incumbent right now. Um, yeah. Is, is, um, is, is that, uh, that, that quote that, that we've heard over the last few cycles, are you better off now than you were four years ago, is, is that always the question to be asked when you have uh, an incumbent opponent, as Biden does in this uh, race? I mean, yeah, honestly, I think voters' window is a lot shorter on that. It's more like, you know, are you better off than you were a year ago? Or are you better off than you were <laughs> six months ago? People tend to think very recently about these things. Um, and it is, uh, and that's, you know, partially why you see around the world, like, you know, um, uh, the New Zealand just had their elections and they rewarded uh, their government with, with a huge re-election margin because uh, they felt she had handled the immediate crisis well. Um, and in countries where the coronavirus has really spun out of control, incumbents aren't doing that well. And, and people are, are blaming uh, the, the incumbent government for that. Um, so, yeah, often, uh, you know, people just think in those terms. And it's, it's not necessarily that they're going through a a long thought process about, you know, how responsible are they? Um, it's more like, uh, I just don't like the way things are, and I need someone to blame for this. Yeah. And, you know, presidents usually do well on that. That guy didn't make it better. Exactly. Um, you know, I just, I, I just read a post by a friend of mine from uh, Los Angeles who talked about he had been on... He'd been closed up, he said, since March, and, and he had to drive over to Simi Valley to take his son something. Um, and he was commenting on all of the Trump signs that he saw on the flags, you know, flying in the back, you know, from the beds of pickup trucks. And, and, um, and he was quite overwhelmed by it. He's a Biden supporter. And he, um, saw that that enthusiasm as um, a, a bit of a sign that somehow Trump was doing better. Um, not just that Trump was doing better, but in an area where he wouldn't have expected him to be doing better. And, and he was really lamenting it. Um, is, is it possible that the polls which show Biden up, especially uh, 
up in swing states and states where Donald Trump won four years ago. Are the polls looking about like they did in 2016? And should that make Democrats want to not be complacent? So that that's a really good question. Um, it's, it's interesting to think about the polling. So overall polling back in 2016, like nationally, it was pretty close. Uh, most of the polls had Hillary Clinton ahead by about three or four points. She ended up winning the popular vote by two to three points. Um, you know, so that was pretty accurate. But where it missed um, was was in a handful of states in Michigan, in Wisconsin, in Pennsylvania. Um, where she had looked like she was leading by around five percentage points going into that election, and suddenly she uh, loses very narrowly. What the polling missed at that point was, you know, in, in a very specific area of the country, in the upper Midwest, um, they had really not talked to enough, um, you know, what we sometimes call working class whites. You know, uh, uh, white people usually, you know, without a college education. Um, and they just talk, you know, it's, it, it tends to be somewhat harder to reach those people. So they just talk to enough white people in general and just assume that that represented how white people were going to vote. And it turned out there was a big difference in that part of the country in that election between how college educated people or white people were going to vote and non-college educated white people were going to vote. Um, who who trended strongly for Trump in a way that they're strongly for the Republicans in a way that they hadn't in previous elections. Pollsters are aware of that. They've made a lot of adjustments uh, this year, this cycle, um, to try to capture that. And so our assumption is that you know we're we're not seeing a repeat of of that um, of that mistake. Basically, they're, that you know they're not going to miss that. It's possible there's some other hidden bias in, in the polling that uh, that we're just missing this year, and we just won't know that until people, you know, people, the votes get counted. Um, that's probably not the case, but one of the, the real sort of X factors this year is that voter turnout looks very high. Um, you know, just, just some of the, where the early voting is going on, we're seeing just dramatically high numbers. And this may be one of the, the highest turnout elections we've had in decades. And when you have a situation like that, that means it's, it's a little less predictable who is going to turn out to vote. Um, you know, pollsters try to capture that when they, when they talk to people, but it can be hard to know whether that high turnout advantages Republicans, advantages Democrats. So it, it adds a little bit of mystery and makes us wonder if, you know, just how accurate the polling is. But... I would say, um, I, I think you know one of the one of the other lessons that Democrats took out of 2016 is uh, don't get too confident if your candidate is ahead in the polls. Well, uh, and there there are actually, <clears throat> in some ways, two uh, two different campaigns: one for the popular vote and one for the electoral college. And um, the the polling generally relates to the popular vote. Um, but uh, what what did the Democrats learn about electoral math? Well, I mean, you know, they were always focused on winning at the electoral college level. They just, you know, from the state level polling they had, uh, they they assumed they had that locked up, and until it turned out they didn't. 
Um, and yeah, that's that's a I mean that's sort of a general lesson for election watchers is that the you know polling at the national level if we're just sort of watching those uh, you know Biden has like a ten point something lead nation nationwide that's a usually that's a pretty good indicator of what's going to happen but it's not perfect and that's a you know if you want to predict what's going to go on in the electoral college that's usually pretty accurate but not a hundred percent so. Um, you know, forecasts built on good state-level polling that will give you an idea of who's going to win the electoral votes in each state. That's ideally what you want. That, that's that's what you. That's what will give you a more realistic idea of what's going to happen out there. Um, but to do that, you need lots of good state polling numbers, and I, I think we're seeing more of that this year uh, than we did in 2016. A lot of pollsters are way more focused on just. Uh, aggressively polling in the swing states um but then uh, and and people i think have learned somewhat to focus more on that than on national level polling but you know as we know some you know states can be quirky and and patterns can be missed so i i don't i don't think anyone should assume this thing is in the bag one way or the other seth are, are you would you be comfortable making a prediction <laughs> Um, I'm not super comfortable making a prediction. <laughs> uh, I made a bunch of them in 2016. That didn't work out very well. For me, <laughs> <but>. <laughs> yeah, predictions are fine until the results come in, right? Um, I mean, I would say, I'll say this. I mean, they, I, I have no reason to doubt the polling that we're seeing now. Um, there's nothing that I'm, I'm seeing happening that suggests that they're getting it completely wrong. And I'm, you know, I'm assuming these, I would say Biden is in a considerably stronger position than Hillary Clinton was four years ago, that his lead is, uh, stronger now, closer to the election and has been much more steady than Hillary Clinton's was four years ago. Um, you know, which just, which, which leads me to assume that, you know, basically that, that the polling now is a, probably a pretty accurate prediction of what's going to happen in the election. But, uh, beyond that, I really wouldn't want to speculate a whole lot more. And there's probably a cumulative effect, you know, uh, Democrats don't want to repeat 2016. Yeah. If anything, that's, you know, that was one of the main things I took out of all these interviews I did with people, uh, with Democrats, is that they were desperate to avoid 2016 again. That well, a lot of them came out of it, you know, not just, you know, they weren't just disappointed in the outcome. They were traumatized. They didn't understand it. Um, and, it, like, every instinct that they had, every tool that they had, you know, told them one thing was going to happen and then something else did. And they were, you know, kind of desperate to avoid that situation again. Well, Seth, we've got to wrap it up there. The name of the book is Learning from Loss, the Democrats 2016 to 2020. Uh, Seth has uh, written uh, several books. And, and Seth, I always give guests an opportunity to let listeners know where they can find out more about you and your work, past, present, and future. Do you have a website? I do. Uh, you can find me at uh, uh, com, And that's Masket is like basket with an M. Okay, well, Seth, thanks for spending this time with me this morning. It was uh, a pleasure talking with you. Thank you so much for having me on. I really enjoyed it. Take care, Seth.
We're going to take a short break, but uh, coming up at the top of the hour, be sure and stay tuned for Armchair Politics. We'll be right back. Hi, this is Joe By from the Blue Lions, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. Hi, this is Tom from the Tom Sumner Program. If you like talk radio that makes you think without telling you what to think, check out our whole show weekdays from 9 a.m. to noon Eastern at TomSumnerProgram.com. Selected segments are also available on this and other radio stations, but you can hear us anytime. Daily editions of the Tom Sumner Program repeat online all day and night on the show's website. Past shows can be found in the website archives. My long-format interviews with New York Times best-selling author photographers and writers from National Geographic, as well as artists, musicians, candidates, and elected officials are made possible by listeners like you. Support the Tom Sumner Program and Civilized Talk Radio. Visit our website at TomSumnerProgram.com and become a member. You can make a one-time gift or become a sustaining patron by taking the link to the Tom Sumner Program Patreon page. Thanks for listening and thanks for your support. discoveries. They happen when we least expect them in places we thought we knew. And discoveries have a way of teaching us a little more about ourselves along the way. Welcome to Flint and Genesee County, where up north meets down south. Home to Michigan's largest county park system and a vibrant culture. A place filled with discoveries we've yet to make throughout acres of beautiful lakes, wetlands, and woods, and in the diverse city beyond. Where the uplifting melodies of gospel choirs fill the air. Where the work of renowned artists color the galleries and museums. Where the fresh fruits and vegetables at the downtown farmer's market awaken our senses. And where the cultural center and planetarium broaden our view of the world. Let's spend a few days enjoying the wonders of Flint and Genesee County. Where the joy of discovery is pure Michigan. Your trip begins at Michigan.org. Thank you, and thank you all for tuning in. You know, we know that tough times don't last, but tough people do. We've been through a lot here in Michigan. We've been through crisis before, where the country needed their countrymen and countrywomen to pitch in collectively to get through a crisis and rise to the occasion. Michigan once was the arsenal of democracy to win World War II. We need that same spirit now. We're working around the clock with doctors and hospitals and first responders to stop the spread and to save lives. But we need your help too. The state has launched a new volunteer website at www.michigan.gov forward slash fight COVID-19 where trained medical professionals can register to serve their fellow Michiganders by assisting hospitals in fighting COVID-19. State residents can also use the site to find out how they can help in their local communities by giving blood or donating resources or needed medical supplies. Whether you're a medical professional looking to volunteer or you're someone who can give blood or donate to your local food bank, everyone can help out. To get through this, we must all do our part. Stay home, stay safe, and save lives. Technical assistance for the Tom Sumner Program is provided by Swiftlet Technology, engineering and IT services at swiftlet.technology. I know of a place 
where you never get harmed. A magical place with magical charms. Indoors, indoors, indoors. Take it away. Hey, this is First Ward City Councilman Eric Mays, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. I think Mr. Nixon is an effective leader of his party. I hope he would grant me the same. Mr. Nixon, would you like to comment on that statement? I have no comment. Now, in his news conference on August 24th, President Eisenhower was asked to give one example of a major idea of yours that he adopted. His reply was, and I'm quoting, If you give me a week, I might think of one. I don't remember. Well, I would suggest, Mr. Van Oker, that uh, if you know the president... There is no Soviet domination of Eastern Europe, and there never will be under a Ford administration. I'm sorry, could I just pause? Did I understand you to say, sir, that the Russians are not... I recall yet that President Kennedy had to go for days on end with very little sleep during the Cuba Missile Crisis. Is there any doubt in your mind that you would be able to function in such circumstances? Not at all. Mr. Truett and I, and I want you to know that also, I will not make age an issue of this campaign. I am not going to exploit, for political purposes, my opponent's youth and inexperience. I am paying for this microphone, Mr. We have a question right here. Yes, how has the national debt personally affected each of your lives? I think the national debt affects everybody. Uh, obviously, it has, has a lot to do with interest rates. It has... She's you, saying you personally. You, on a personal basis, how has it affected you? Has it affected you personally? Well, I'm sure it has. I love my grand grandchildren. I want to think how? that... Th Are you suggesting that if somebody has means that the national debt doesn't affect them? Well, what I'm, saying I'm, I'm not sure I get it. Help me with the question. I think she means more the recession, um, the economic problems today the country faces well, rather listen, than the you ought, to, you ought to be in the White House for a day and hear what I hear and see what I see and read the mail I read and touch. Funneling money to his wife's law firm for state business. That's number one. I don't care what you say about me. But you ought to be ashamed of yourself for jumping on my wife. You're not worth being on the same platform. I'll tell as my you wife. something. Governor, if Kitty Dukakis were raped and murdered, would you favor an irrevocable death penalty for the killer? No, I don't, Bernard, and I think you know that I propose the death penalty. Admiral Stockdale, your opening statement, please, sir. Who am I? Why am I here? <laughs> I will put Medicare and Social Security in a lockbox. I will put Medicare in an ironclad lockbox. I'd be interested if, this e if he would this evening say that he would put Medicare in a lockbox. The governor will not put Medicare in a lockbox by the year 2012. I think we need to put Medicare and Social Security in a lockbox. I think it should stay in a lockbox. I guess my answer to that is the man's running on Medicare. Thanks. Uh, I hear there's rumors on the, uh... This is an attack piece. That is not by my campaign. What well, says paid for by John McCain?
They seem to like Barack Obama more. Well, that hurts my feelings. <laughs> I'm sorry, Senator. I'm sorry. But I'll try to go on. <laughs> I don't think I'm that bad. Um, uh, you're likable no. enough. Thank Hillary you, sir. <laughs> and I will tell you, it's three agencies of government when I get there that are gone. Commerce, education, and the, um, uh, what's the third one there? Let's see. <laughs> oh, five. Okay. So commerce, education, and uh, the... Um, uh, EPA? EPA. There you go. No, okay. Let's talk, let's talk deposition. Seriously? Um, is EPA the one you were talking about? Or? No, sir. No, sir. We were talking about the... Um, agencies of government. EPA needs to be rebuilt. But There's you no can't, doubt about but that. But you can't name the third one? The third agency of government. Yeah. I would I would do away with the education, uh, the uh, <laughs> commerce. I, I, commerce, and let's see. I can't. The third one, I can't. Sorry. <laughs> In a similar time frame, raises for CEOs up more than 200%. Sorry. I'm watching the debate and she disappeared. Where did she go? Where did she go? I, I know where she went. It's disgusting. I don't want to talk about it. No, it's too disgusting. Don't say it. It's disgusting. Let's not do it. We want to be very, very straight up, okay? Did you take a test on the day of the debate, I guess, uh, is the I bottom line? I probably did, and I took a test the day before and the day before, and I was always in great shape, and I was in great shape for the debate. As president, I can't be locked in a room someplace for the next year and just stay and do nothing. And every time I go into a crowd, uh, I was with uh, the parents of our fallen heroes. These people are the most incredible people. And they came up to me and they would hug me and they would touch me. And I'm not going to not let them do it. When a president doesn't wear a mask or makes fun of folks like me when I was wearing a mask for a long time, then, you know, people say, well, it mustn't be that important. After contracting COVID-19 yourself, has your opinion changed on the importance of mask wearing? No, because I was okay with the masks. I was good with it, but I've heard many different stories on masks. If you listen to the head of the, of the CDC, he stood up and he said, you know, while we're waiting for a vaccine, he held up a mask. You wear this mask, you'll save more lives between now and the end of the year than if we had a vaccine. I knew it was a big threat. At the same time, I don't want to panic this country. I don't want to go out and say, everybody's going to die. Everybody's Isn't going there a middle ground? ground? You don't no, have to mislead, but you can... No, no, no. There's not a middle ground. You have to be safe, you have to be vigilant, and you have to be smart. Besides, you ain't black. What do you have to say to young black voters who see voting for you as further participation in a system that continually fails to protect them? Well, I say, first of all, as my buddy John Lewis said, it's a sacred opportunity right to vote. You can make a difference. If young black women and men vote, you can determine the outcome of this election. Not a joke. You can do that. Mr. President, what will you and your administration do to better prepare our law enforcement officers to work in collaboration with the communities that they serve and also to protect the lives of innocent black and Latinos from police brutality and injustice. Right. I fully understand the question. And uh, I saw everything that you saw over the summer. And it was a terrible thing, a terrible thing to watch. 
and some people don't like it when I say it, but a lot of people agree. I have done more for the African-American community than any president with the exception of Abraham Lincoln. You said you don't you don't want to ban fracking. As you know, it's an important issue here in Pennsylvania. Not everyone buys your denial. A member of the Boilermakers Local 154, Sean Steffi, was quoted in the New York Times today saying, you can't have it both ways. It says you can't meet your goal to end fossil fuels without ending fracking. What do you say to people like Sean who doubt your denial because they think you're you want to keep that promise. Well, tell them the boilermakers overwhelmingly endorse me, okay? What I would do is I would stop making, I would stop giving tax breaks and subsidizing oil. We don't need to subsidize oil any longer, number one. We should stop that and save billions of dollars over time. What I would also do with regard to, there's no, the difference between me and the new Green Deal, they say automatically by 2030, we're going to be carbon free. Not possible. So are you for it or against it? You say you're not for it, but in your website it says you call it a crucial framework. The Green my, deal. My, my deal is a crucial framework. I'm sure they'll ask you the white supremacy question. I denounce white supremacy. Okay. And frankly, you want to know something? I denounce Antifa and I denounce these people on the left that are burning down our cities that are run by Democrats who don't right, know what they're doing. While we're denouncing, let me ask you about QAnon. I just don't know about QAnon. You do know. I don't know. No, I don't know. What I do hear about it is they are very strongly against pedophilia. And I agree with that. I mean, I do agree okay. with that, and I agree but with it. But there's not a satanic uh, pedophile I have no idea. I know nothing about that. You don't know that? Okay. No, I don't know you that. You just and this neither week. do you know that. Okay. Just this week, you retweeted to your 87 million followers a conspiracy theory that Joe Biden orchestrated to have SEAL Team 6, the Navy SEAL Team 6, killed to cover up the, f- the fake death of bin Laden. Now, why would you send a lie like that to your followers? You retweeted it. That was it. a retweet. That was a, an opinion of somebody, but, and that was a retweet. I'll put it out there. People can decide for themselves. I don't the take president. a position. You're not like someone's crazy uncle. Your own FBI director says there is no evidence of widespread oh, really? fraud. Well, then he's not doing a very good job. If I'm elected president, you will not hear me race baiting. You will not hear me dividing. You will hear me trying to unify and unify with bring people together. When I said I was running because I wanted to unify the country, people said, well, there were the old days. We better be able to do it again. We better be able to do it again. Mr. Vice President, if you lose, what will that say to you about where America is today? Well, it could say that I'm a lousy candidate and I didn't do a good job. Um, But I think, uh, I hope that it doesn't say that we are as racially, ethnically, and religiously at odds with one another as it appears. Are we crazy?
you pilots get off my lawn. We're trying to do a radio show down here. It's a Tom Sumner program, don't you know? Go on. Go on, get out of here. It's 